Let us begin in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this morning on a chapter that is somewhat difficult to understand and yet very important for several reasons. So help us to open our minds and hearts so that your spirit can really work through Holy Scripture to give us uh, a better understanding of what the writer is trying to say. So we ask your blessing on our efforts and we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. This is the kind of chapter that I really like because it's got some meat to it. Not that the, not that the others didn't have, but this one uh, really, I think, has something that we need to talk about and we really need to have it in our minds and hearts because it applies to us today just as much as it did uh, back in the second century or even the sixth century BC. Uh, but I want to tell you a little bit uh, about uh, an interesting uh, situation <clears throat> Korachenko called me the, the other last, was it Thursday morning, wasn't it? Yeah. And said that uh, EWTN, you know, the, the Catholic channel on uh, cable, uh, was going to present a half-hour uh, discussion on the book of the prophet Daniel. So I thought, well, all right, I don't usually watch television during the day, but this was an exception, so I thought, why not? You know, well, it was interesting because here was a, a nice little nun. You could tell she was a nun. I mean, after all, they, even though she didn't wear a habit, you know, they, they just radiate that. Yeah, yeah. And she gave a nice little talk, and I had no quarrel with what she said. But right up front, she said, "I'm not going to discuss the historical." significance or background of this book. And I thought, well, why not, you know? That would have taken, I think, the whole half hour at the rate she was going. So that's probably why. But the other thing is, what she did was she spent the whole half hour solely on uh, sort of what we would call a theological reflection. In other words, she took the spirituality uh, from the book and worked on that, which was all right, except that that's not Bible study, because the people didn't come out of there understanding what the writer was trying to present. Um, and that's true for all of the Bibles. If you do not understand where the original writer is coming from, and what he or she, well, there's no she in this case, because the Bible was all written by males, you might say. <clears throat> but wherever the writer was coming from, then you're really not going to get the full understanding or extent or intention of what the writer is trying to present. And that was the case here. What she said could have been said virtually about any part of the Bible. And that was fine. I had no quarrel with what it was, what she said. It was what she didn't say that I really had a little bit of a problem. 
And I think Cora would agree with me, would you not? <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's all. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Uh, the other, the other thing I had to kind of chuckle at was there was probably, you know, the, the camera focused on the listeners, the, the audience, who might say, there couldn't have been more than ten or so people there, and they all look sort of bored to death. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, anyways, well, <laughs> let's get back to what we're supposed to be talking about today. Okay, chapter 9. <clears throat> chapter 9 is really so different from all of the rest uh, of this book of Daniel. And what the writer is trying to do, and the writer was probably somebody different than any of the other writers of this book. Remember, each chapter was probably written uh, at a different time and, and by a different person. Uh, and this one is picking up so much from the Old Testament, but unless you really understand, particularly Ezekiel or Jeremiah, you're, you're really not going to get the full benefit of what this writer is trying to say. So that's what I want to talk about uh, this morning uh, says here in beginning in chapter 9 it was the first year that Darius son of uh, I gotta stop and think Azarias yeah <laughs> yeah or Azarias yeah of the race of the Medes reigned over the kingdom of the Chalcedon Chaldeans. Get my tongue straightened out here. <clears throat> In the first year of uh, the reign, uh, I, Daniel, tried to understand in the scriptures the counting of the years in which the Lord spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. For the ruins of Jerusalem, 70 years must be fulfilled. Okay. I turned to the Lord God, pleading in earnest prayer, with fasting, sackcloth, excuse me, sackcloth and ashes. That's where, you know, on Ash Wednesday here, when you came to get ashes, that's where the little patch of sackcloth came from, okay? I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, you who keep your merciful covenant towards those who love you and observe your commandments. We have sinned, been wicked and done evil. We have rebelled and departed from your commandments and your laws. Does that sound familiar like you read it before? Yeah. That comes really out of chapter 3. All right. The prayer of... Uh, Azariah, one of the three companions of Daniel, right? Virtually the same words. Now, let me give you a little background. Most of the book of Daniel, as I said, was written in the second century for those people, and because they were, it was written for the educated people, they understood the scriptures, and they knew 
that the writer was really talking about things going on in the second century. But because of the political situation at that time and the fact that they were uh, conquered people by the Greeks, they could not really say what they wanted to. So they put the whole context or the storyline back in the 6th century for two reasons. The one is to disguise what they were saying, but the second one, which is more really more important, is that the people were beginning to accept the Hellenistic uh, culture that the Greeks were trying to force on the Jewish people. And they became apostates. And I uh, hope you all know what apostate means. All right. A-P-O-S-T-A-S-Y. All right. Means that you are abandoning the current beliefs, in this case, and you're going to something else. But that's exactly what the people did in the 6th century. That's exactly what caused them to uh, be dominated by the Babylonians and carted off to Babylon for a period of roughly 50 years. All right. Now, I'll get into the comparison of the 50 years to the 70 years here in a minute. But that's what was also beginning to happen in the second century. When the people came back from Babylon, they had gotten religion, so to speak, in Babylon, and they finally, because they, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both, well, Jeremiah wasn't, never went to Babylon, but Ezekiel did, and they took the book of Deuteronomy with them, all right? which is really the book of the law, primarily the book of the law uh, that is referred to frequently throughout the Old Testament. And after they finally realized why they were there, if you read some of the early prayers, they didn't really understand why God abandoned them and allowed the Babylonians to cart them off. But finally, they realized that because of the sins that they had committed for the past 500 years, meaning from the time of uh, the end of Solomon's reign all the way down to the end of the 6th century, each of the kings that came along, with a few exceptions, and there were about 50 of them in that 500-year period, each of those, uh, one couldn't or tried to outdo the other in evil. And that's and that's why the prophets came. You see, you had a balancing act. God could have wiped those people out, but that would have taken away free will. So what he did was, instead of just wiping them out and getting rid of the problem, he brings in the prophets to sort of balance the evil that was going on in that 500-year period. You know, from the end of uh, the 10th century or 11th century, no, 9th century, I have to go backwards, 9th century down uh, to the beginning of the 6th century B.C. During that time period was the time of the prophets. Okay? 
And they were brought in by God to balance and try to convince the people to come back to observing the law. But they didn't. And so God said, well, and if we read, for example, uh, Psalm 8. Let me read that because it, it just kind of explains a lot of uh, things that are going on. And it's not very long. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not eight, 81. It's the one. And, and um, uh, it starts out very nicely, as God would do. You know, his love uh, overshadows all of his punishments. Uh, but it's the ending that's really important. Sing joyfully to God our strength. Acclaim the God of Jacob. Take up a melody and sound the trumpet, the pleasant harp and the lyre. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, or uh, our solemn feast. For it is a statute in Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob, who made it a decree for Joseph when he came from the land of Egypt. An un Familiar speech I hear. I believe his sh- I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. <clears throat> In distress you called and I rescued you. In other words, God is going and enumerating all of the things that he did from the time the people left uh, Egypt to come back to the promised land. In distress you called and I rescued you. Unseen I answered you in thunder. I tested you at the waters of Mirabah. Hear, my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, will you not hear me? There shall be no strange God among you. And see, the people during this time period, between between Solomon and uh, the Babylonian captivity, were just getting worse and worse and worse, and were abandoning God altogether and going to pagan gods and doing all kinds of evil things. In distress you called and I rescued you. Unseen I answered you in thunder. I tested you at the waters of Mirabah. Hear my people and I will admonish you. O Israel, will you not hear me? There shall be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any alien God. I, the Lord, am your God, who led you forth from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people heard me not, or heard not my voice, and Israel obeyed me not. And so I left them in the hardness of their hearts. They walked according to their own counsel. Now, if only my people would hear me, and Israel would walk in my ways, quickly I would humble their enemies. Against their foes I would turn my hand, and those who hated the Lord would seek to flatter me, but their faith would endure forever. While Israel I would feed with the best of wheat, and with the honey from the rock I would fill them. You can almost feel the Lord's anguish there, because the people just totally neglected and abandoned him. Uh, and so, again, because of free will, he wasn't going to just wipe them out. 
He let them go ahead and do what they wanted, and that's why they ended up in Babylon. But they still didn't know for a number of years. But finally, with the help of the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, okay, uh, they finally got the message. All right, now, we're talking about 6th century B.C., Babylon, all right? When they finally came back, after about 50 years, they, oh, you know, they were going to do the right thing. They were going to obey, and they were going to do this, and they were going to do that. And Ezra and Nehemiah came uh, behind them and rebuilt the temple and so forth and so on. But as the time went on, they began to worship the law and not God. In other words, strict sticking to the law was far more important than a relationship with God. All right, now, let's go back or go ahead, you might say, uh, to the second century B.C. The same thing was beginning to happen again. So, you have to kind of visualize what's going on here with the writer of this chapter 9. He is trying to prevent the same kind of thing because the people were beginning to accept the Hellenistic culture that was being forced upon them by Antiochus IV and the Greek, cult, uh, the Greek conquerors. And that is what we are faced with here. So that's why this chapter is going back and doing a meditation on both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Okay, Because Jeremiah sort of remained in Babylon. I'm sorry. Jeremiah remained in Israel and Jerusalem, etc. During the Babylonian captivity. Because he was trying to see not everybody went to Babylon. The conquerors only took those people who could do them some good. They weren't slaves like we think of the word slave. They were indentured servants. All of the uh, craftspeople, the people who were educated, uh, who could do the Babylonians some good. Okay, The sick, the elderly, little children, and so forth, were left in uh, Israel. <clears throat> and of course, uh, the city was destroyed. And when you take the able-bodied men away, they couldn't do farming. And so the people that were left behind really suffered in many different ways. But they also began to accept a lot of uh, the culture that was being forced upon them. Okay, So you have the same thing being repeated in the second century as what caused the Babylonian captivity in the first place in the sixth century. Okay, So that's why this book is sort of uh, revisiting, you might say, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so beginning or picking up with the uh, verse uh, 6 here. We have not obeyed your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings. You see, there were no prophets in the second century. The prophets died out after the Babylonian captivity, because they weren't doing any good, 
and they weren't needed because the people had picked up uh, the book of Deuteronomy and were observing it. But unfortunately, as I said, uh, they were observing the laws, but not for the right reason. <clears throat> we have not obeyed your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Justice, O Lord, is on your side. We are shamefaced even to this day. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, near and far in all the countries to which you have scattered them because of their treachery towards you. Now, all the countries that uh, to which you have scattered them, God didn't scatter them. But when the Babylonians started to conquer, and it took about ten years for that to really be accomplished because they tried uh, two or three times and it, after a while it sort of wore the uh, Jewish people down and they gave in. Uh, but when that began to happen, a lot of people left Jerusalem and went to other parts of the empire, that is the Greek empire, okay? Um, well, it couldn't have been the Greek empire because well, they went to other other countries, you might say, primarily uh, Greece and North Africa. And that is called the diaspora, right? If you have heard that word before, it comes from the word, our English word, dispersion, right? And it means that the people left Israel, Jerusalem, that area, and they went to other parts of the world. Now, they still remained Jews, but they went to other parts of the world, and that is what is called here, diaspora, or uh, scattering the people to other countries. Uh, there is a passage in Ezekiel that talks about, and you probably have heard this in church, because every three years or so it is read as one of the first readings about, listen, my people, I'm going to open your graves and let you rise from them, etc. The word graves is meant to, mentioned two or three times. I don't know if you recall that. But they're not talking about graves of the dead. They're really talking about the people that were scattered into these other countries. That was considered their graves. And they're being brought back now uh, to Israel. Well, that, of course, really didn't happen uh, to any great extent until after 1948, when Israel became another sovereign country by virtue of the uh, United Nations. Okay. Oh, Lord, we are shamefaced like our kings, our princes, and our fathers. Uh, but... Yours, O oh Lord, our God, our compassion and forgiveness. Yet we rebelled against you and paid no heed to the command. O oh Lord, our God, to live by the law you gave us through your servants, the prophets. You gave us the law through the servants, your prophets. Because all Israel transgressed your law and went astray, not heeding your voice, that's right out of uh, Psalm 81. The sworn malediction, 
recorded in the law of Moses, the servant of God, was poured out over us for our sins. You carried out the threats and you spoke against us, against those who governed us, by bringing upon us in Jerusalem the greatest calamity that has ever occurred under heaven. And again, he's talking about the Babylonian captivity. That's why this particular chapter is so different from all of the others. And it is probably written by someone other than the other writers. As it is written in the law of Moses, this calamity came full upon us as we did not appease the Lord our God by turning back from our wickedness and recognizing his constancy. So the Lord kept watch over the calamity and brought it upon us. Well, no, they brought it upon themselves. The Lord does not bring calamity on somebody deliberately. There is something there that causes it. The Lord does not bring evil or harm uh, on anyone. He will allow it to happen uh, if there is no other recourse. You, O Lord, our God, are just in all that you have done. For we did not listen to your voice. And that, of course, is sort of a repeat out of chapter 3. All right. The prayer of Azariah in chapter 3 is an extremely beautiful prayer, and it is used in the uh, Liturgy of the Hours uh, frequently. And it's also uh, said as the first reading of uh, the Mass at least once every three years. Now, O Lord our God, You led your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made a name for yourself even to this day. We have sinned and we are guilty, O Lord, in keeping with all your just deeds. Let your anger and your wrath be turned away from uh, your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. On account of our sins and the crimes of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become the reproach of our neighbors. Will you see... The same thing is happening again in the second century. And that's exactly why he's praying this way. uh, Because he's asking for the Lord's protection against the Greeks. In the same way that the people back in the sixth century should have prayed. Hear therefore, O God the prayer and petition of your servant, and for your own sake. O Lord, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O my God, and listen. Open your eyes and see our ruins and the city which bears your name. Bears your name. How does the city of Jerusalem bear the name of God? Anyone know? The city of Jerusalem used to be called Salem, which is sort of a rough translation from the word shalom, meaning peace. That's where you go back to it being a name for God. Okay, God is peace. 
Give ear, O my God, and listen. Open your eyes and see our ruins and the city which bears your name. When we present our petition before you, we rely not on our just deeds, but on your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, pardon. O Lord, be attentive and act without delay for your own sake, O Lord my God, because this city and your people bear your name. Okay, this way. All right. Now, that's the end of his prayer within this, it's not exactly a dream, but it's a meditation, you might say. Okay. <clears throat> then it says, I was still occupied with my prayer, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my petition to the Lord my God on behalf of his holy mountain. What holy mountain? I was still occupied with this prayer when Gabriel, the one whom I had seen before in the previous uh, chapters, the one whom I had seen before in vision, came to me in rapid flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me in these words, Daniel, I have come now to give you understanding. When you began your petition, an answer was given which I have come to announce, because you are beloved. And therefore, mark the answer and the understanding and understanding the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and for your holy city. All right. Read the word weeks as years. Then, well, uh, that's, all right, let's leave that for the minute. Uh, Then, transgression will stop and sin will end. Guilt will be expiated. Everlasting justice will be introduced. Vision and prophecy ratified, and a most holy will be anointed. Know and understand this. From the utterance of the word that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt, until one who is anointed and a leader, there shall be 70 weeks. Okay. Uh, seven weeks, I'm sorry. All right. Seven. Let's back up a little bit. When we're talking about the Babylonian area, era, in the sixth century, it was prophesied by Ezekiel that it would be 70 years. All right. But remember, the Bible is written in both a spiritual way and a temple or earthly or real way, okay? And you got to be very careful as to which one the author is talking about. Physically, the Babylonians or the, the Jewish people in Babylon in the 6th century only stayed there for about 50 years from 587 B.C. to 539 thereabouts. Um, B.C. 
But the 70 years is not measured from those two dates. It's measured from 587 till around 517 when the temple was rebuilt. You see, Cyrus the Great was the one who released Cyrus the Great from Persia, was the one who released the uh, Jews to uh, allow them to come back to Israel. And he gave them uh, a lot of support and help and so forth and so on. But they trickled back beginning in 539 B.C. They trickled back a little at a time. One or two of the people most instrumental in getting them resettled was Nehemiah and um, Ezra. Right? Nehemiah was sort of a general official and uh, Ezra was a priest. Okay. Nehemiah was the one that helped rebuild the temple, but it took quite a while. So the temple wasn't rebuilt till around 517 uh, B.C. So you're talking about 587 to 517. That's the 70 years that the prophecy was about. And that's what Ezekiel was telling about uh meaning the Babylonian captivity. What this person is talking about now, the writer of chapter 9 here in Daniel, is the 70 weeks is really his prophecy of the time from that period on to the time of the death of Antiochus IV. Now, it was approximately accurate. But remember, this was a prophecy that he sort of made up, you might say. Because there was no way of knowing since this was written before Antiochus died. And it was what they called a prophecy uh, after the fact, so to speak. <clears throat> if we go now to verse uh, let's say 25. No one understand this from the utterance of the word that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt until one who is anointed and a leader. There shall be seventy seven weeks. Pardon me. During sixty two weeks it shall be rebuilt with streets and trenches in time of affliction. After the sixty two weeks, an anointed uh, shall be cut down when he does not possess the city. And the people of um, a leader who will come shall destroy the sanctuary. Well, he's talking about, again, the Greeks and, and Antiochus IV who desecrated the temple. But it was finally relieved uh, by the Maccabees. After the 62 weeks, the anointed shall be uh, cut down when he does not possess the city and anointed. That is really uh, tongue-in-cheek, you might say, talking about Antiochus IV. And the people of and the people of a leader who will come shall destroy the sanctuary. Then the end shall come like a torrent. Until the end there shall be war, the desolation that is decreed. For one week he shall take a firm compact with the many, he shall make a firm compact with the many. Half the week 
he shall abolish sacrifice and oblation. On the temple wing shall be the horrible abomination until the ruin that is decreed is poured out upon the whole. Well, you have to be a little careful with this because, like I said, it is wishful thinking again. It was written before Antiochus uh, was uh, died. He did not die in Israel. He died in Persia of a disease, not battle. Um, but his rule remained for a while, and some of his generals remained in Jerusalem until they were routed by uh, the family of the Maccabees. Okay, so. All of this is sort of, uh, you might say, trying to prophesy what is going to happen, but it's based on some of the events of the 6th century. It's a little confusing, I admit. Uh, but what is really intended here is, again, like the whole book of, of Daniel, uh, it's a message of hope and reliance on God himself. Right. because no one else could really have done this. God was really behind the Maccabees in routing uh, the Greeks out of there and restoring uh, the temple and so forth. Somewhat in the same way that um, Ezra and Nehemiah restored the temple back in the uh, latter part of the 6th century B.C. So the whole idea is something is happening in 2nd century. It's reflecting back on the 6th century for the same reason. Now, you got that all straight, eh? Uh, well, the question is, why did they adhere to the law so strictly? Yeah. Um, first, we got we got to go back up a little bit to answer your question. The law was given to Moses way back in the 15th century, B.C., okay? And it started with the Ten Commandments. But along with that, remember that Moses led the Israelites through the desert for approximately 40 years. During that time, they had to establish a lot of rules and regulations because the desert could barely sustained a large number of people. And God, of course, gave them uh, the basic food through the manna and the quail. All right? But they didn't have a lot of other things. For example, water. Water was extremely uh, scarce. So Moses established a lot of hygiene and health rules, which over a period of time took on a religious significance. They were not intended that way. Yet all the dietary laws were never intended, but they took on the religious significance, particularly after the Babylonian captivity, because they were going to turn the whole thing around and go from extremely evil to extremely holy by observing the law. Well, unfortunately, that's not the way it should be. You go from evil to holy by actually throwing yourself on the mercy of God. Okay? And 
because they took on all of these little health laws or rules. They weren't laws. They were rules, but they took on a religious significance over a period of time. And other things that Moses never even dreamt about uh, sort of were gathered in. And so now you have 613 laws that the Jewish people observe. And they feel that they can get to heaven, if they believe in heaven, and many of them don't, um, by observing the rules and regulations that they claim Moses gave them. So, I know that's a long way around answering your question, but it, it helps, I think, to understand the background uh, and it's, unfortunate, it's unfortunate uh, when people, even today, in fact, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day about the rules of, and regulations of the Catholic Church. Um, and of course, I'm sure you've all run into that soon, at some point or time. Most of the rules and regulations are not rules, not laws, but statements of belief. And as I generally put it, if you want to belong to the club, you got to obey the rules. Okay. Um, but rules do not get you to heaven. All right. It is the grace of God. Working with the grace of God, fulfilling your particular uh, role in God's plan of salvation is what gets you to heaven. Nothing else. I mean, you can do all the good things that uh, are appreciated by others, and that's not going to get you to heaven if they're not, if that's not in line with what God wants of you. Okay? Jesus himself has said, just because you say, Lord, Lord, that's not going to get you into heaven. It's doing the will of my Father, quoting Jesus. All right, doing the will of my Father is what gets you there. All right, any other questions? All right, you all understand chapter nine, eh? Well, wait till you get to eleven. If you think chapter nine was confusing, wait till you get to chapter eleven. All right, I'm going. Yeah, actually. 10, 11, and 12 sort of form a unit. But I want to get you a little bit prepared for chapter 11. And we'll go over chapter 10. But for next week, kind of read chapter 10, 11, and 12 together because that's really a unit in itself. And if you think chapter 9 was different, where do you get to chapter 11? Okay? All right. Vision of the Hellenistic Wars. Now, Hellenistic. You all are familiar with what I mean by that. Are you not? Okay. This is the Greek culture that was first established by Alexander the Great uh, back in the early part of the 4th century B.C. And it grew because it was attractive to many people, and many of the things were attractive. Many of the things were very good, all right? But one of the things that was not good was that 
the Hellenistic culture accepted what we call polytheism. In other words, everything was a god in one way or the other. There was a lot of uh, gods, and that's how Greek mythology developed. Right? If you understand, uh, are familiar with Greek mythology, there's lots of gods there. And it came out of, really, the Hellenistic culture. <laughs> Excuse me. And those were some of the bad things about it. Okay. Uh, now, when the Greeks conquered Palestine and many of the neighboring countries, they forced the Hellenistic culture on all the people and forbid them to observe their own culture and their own religious traditions. And that's what caused this problem in the first place. And now we're talking about the Hellenistic Wars, which were really the Maccabees, the Jewish people, fighting against the Greeks to try to get rid of them. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who had been named Belteshazzar. The revelation was certain. A great war, he understood it from the vision in those days. I, Daniel, mourned three full weeks. I ate no savory food. I took no meat or wine. And I did not anoint myself at all until the end of the three weeks. Anoint himself. That was part of the culture of joy. In other words, uh, they would anoint themselves as a way of expressing joy and thanksgiving. Okay. On the 24th day of the first month, I was on the bank of a great river, the Tigris. As I looked up, I saw a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His face shone like lightning. His eyes were like fiery torches. His arms and feet looked like burnished bronze. If you go to the book of Revelation, at the end of your Bible, I believe it's, um, I'm guessing, but I think it's chapter 5, 4 or 5. Five. Well, let's see. Let's let's go to chapter four. Now, of course, we're talking about the end of the first century A.D. All right, but the Book of Revelation is written in the same style as the book of Daniel, apocalyptic, all right? In other words, a great deal of symbolisms, and again, much of it is put back into the Babylonian time, which was recognized as the lowest point of Judaism, even more so than Egypt. After this, I had had another vision. Above me, there was an open door to heaven, And I heard the trumpet-like voice which had spoken to me before. It said, come up here and I will show you what 
must take place in time to come. At once I was caught up in ecstasy. A throne was standing there in heaven, and on the throne was seated one whose appearance like a gem-like sparkle, as this as of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne there was a rainbow as brilliant as emerald. Surrounding this, uh, surrounding this throne were twenty-four other thrones, upon which were seated twenty-four elders. In this case, twenty-four is a perfect number, and the roundness means complete or everyone. All right, and it is thought that it was made up by the twelve tribes of Israel plus the twelve apostles. Technically, it was representing everyone. All right. From the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Before it uh, burned seven flaming roots, seven flaming torches, the seven spirits of God, seven again being complete. Uh, The floor around the throne was like a sea of glass that was crystal clear. At the very center around the throne itself stood four living creatures covered with eyes from front and back. Now that sounds horrible, doesn't it? Uh, but again, it's symbolic of all-knowing and all-seeing. All right. At the very... Uh, let's see. The first creature... Well, Anyways, you get the whole idea here. This discussion in Daniel is very much like the same discussion and some of the same words are being used in the book of Revelation. Daniel? Uh, roughly 300 years. Oh, by all means, yes. By all means, yes. Uh, the whole idea of a Apocalyptic literature began around the second century BC and extended to around the end of the second century AD. Okay? So you had about 400 years of this style of writing. But the difference, the time period between this writing and that writing is about 300 years. Yes. Yes. Okay. This idea of being on the bank of a river, again, is uh, right out of Ezekiel, all right, where Ezekiel has this angel showing him water that's coming out of the temple temple, and establishing uh, first a trickle, then a creek, and then uh, a stream, and then a river, and so forth and so on. What it is talking about in Ezekiel uh, is not water but the word of God. Water is often uh, a symbol representing the word of God. I can't give you a good answer for that question as to how I know it. Uh, well, you'd have to read the commentary. It's in the commentary. Yeah, 
Yeah. But it's not in the Bible. No, no, no. Yes, yes. I'm sorry? That's right. That's why, you know, as to, not to digress, but if you are ever thinking of buying a new Bible, I strongly recommend the New American Study Bible. Okay? Because it has a lot of footnotes that will give you that kind of information. Okay? Is that what yours is? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I thought so from seeing it here. Uh, Yes, it's the footnotes that really help you, and the New American Study Bible, um, is, that, is that what that is? It doesn't say study Bible, but it does have some kind of footnotes. Yeah, okay. I have one, but I, um, I don't have it with me today. Anyways, but that's where you would get that kind of information, and that's why when you're studying Scripture... You should read all of the footnotes and a lot of the cross-references because it helps you to understand where the writer is coming from and what he's talking about. If you read just the words of Scripture, you're not going to get all of that information. And that's why it can be very confusing, particularly when you get into all the symbolisms. If you don't understand, there's another whole a series of symbolisms that are used throughout all of the Bible, even in the New Testament. A whole series of words, starting with face. For example, in chapter, I mean, in uh, Psalm 27, there's a phrase that says, seek his face. Well, that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Not? Uh, but face... really means presence of God. Alright? Then you have hand. What is power? Arm is strength. And you have, there's a whole Name, for example. In most cases, where, for example, in the name of the Father, alright, what's the name of the Father? No, that's not a name, that's a title. God has no name. That's deliberately uh, mentioned in the book of Exodus when Moses meets God in the burning bush. Moses asks God what his name is. And God doesn't give him a name. He gives him a title. I am who am. Which is, of course, in Jewish, is translated Yahweh. All right? And that means I am all that is. I am everything. Okay? But name, in this case, throughout the Bible, generally doesn't mean what a person is called. It means the whole person, or persona, as I would say, means the entire person and what he or she stands for. Now, there's a few exceptions, of course, uh, but I think you'll know that when 
See, and throughout the Bible, there are a number of words that are symbolic for other meanings. Now, and it's not done to, it's not done to confuse you, although it does confuse you in many ways. It's because these came out of an ancient culture where they meant something different at that time. For example, name. In Jewish culture, and even today in Mideastern culture, one stranger does not give his name just liberally to another. Name was something particularly back in ancient uh, Israel and ancient Jewish uh, cultures of the Mideast. Name was something that was protected. You did not share your name with just anybody. You know, today we go to a, uh, a gathering of some kind and everybody gets a little badge and says, my name is Joe or Pete or Mary or whatever. You don't do that back in ancient culture because most people could not write and a name, when given, was like almost giving a contract or giving something of yourself to that person. You were giving part of yourself. All right? And that's where that comes from. You were giving your persona to someone else. All right? The only person that you would do that is to immediate family. I mean, the only person that you would give your name to was immediate family and someone that you may have loved real dearly. Name is was greatly protected because when a contract, a verbal contract was given, it was given on the basis of a name only, because that's all the people had. All right? And even today when we talk about name, I mean, we talk about a contract or a verbal agreement, we do a handshake. All right? In that time period, they would give their name. All right? And even in early America, where people, before people were educated, if they had to sign a contract, they would put their thumbprint on the the document. Same thing. Same thing. All right, where did I leave off? Okay, let's go to verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, I was on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. As I looked up, I saw a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine uh, gold around his waist. His body was like crystallite. His face shone like lightning. His eyes were like fiery torches. His arms and feet looked like burnished bronze. And his voice sounded like the roar of a multitude. Now, who is this? Angel Gabriel. Okay. Angel Gabriel. Not Jesus. Jesus does not appear in any of the Old Testament. Huh? Yeah. I alone, Daniel, saw the vision. But great fear seized the men who were with me. They fled and hid themselves, although they did not see the vision. So I was left alone, seeing this great vision. 
No strength remained in me. I turned the color of death and was powerless. It's the same wording is used in the book of Revelation. Uh, the seer, the, the writer, John, in this case, uh, faints a couple times uh, upon seeing uh, the angel or seeing Jesus in a totally different light. Okay. But then a hand touched me, raising me to my hands and knees. Daniel, beloved, he said to me, understand the words which I am speaking to you. Stand up, and my mission now is to you. When he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Fear not, Daniel, he continued. From the first day you made up your mind to acquire understanding and humble yourselves before God. Of course, he's referring back now to the previous chapter where Daniel was trying to understand uh, the words of Jeremiah. Okay. Um, where you made up your mind to acquire understanding and humble yourself before God, your prayer was heard. Because of it, I started out. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia stood in my way for 21 days. Okay, That's the same 21 days that Daniel was fasting. Until finally Michael, one of the chief princes, uh, came to help me. I left him there with the prince of the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what shall happen to your people in the days to come, for there is yet a vision concerning those days. And while he was speaking thus to me, I fell forward and kept silent. Then something like a man's hand touched my lips. You have the same words in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel sees a vision and faints because he is unworthy and the angel takes a coal and uh, from the uh, fire that is there and anoints his lips uh, symbolizing purification. It says, while he was speaking thus to me, I fell forward and kept silent. Then something like a man's hand touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one facing me, my Lord, I was seized with pangs at the vision and I was powerless. How can my Lord's servants, servants speak with you, my Lord? For now no strength or even breath is left in me. The one who looked like a man touched me again and strengthened me, saying, Fear not, beloved, you are safe. Take courage and be strong. See, these are the words the writer is trying to get to the people of the second century. Because he is trying to warn them to be strong in the face of the end of the wars that are to come. When he spoke to me, I grew strong and said, Speak, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. Do you know, he asked, why I have come to you? Soon I must fight the prince of Persia again. When I leave, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is written in the truthful book. 
No one supports me against all these except Michael, your prince, standing as a reinforcement and a bulwark for me. And now I shall tell you the truth. To be continued next week. Well, it, it's it's fear in it's fear in most cases. When a person is um, frightened beyond their own control, that's generally what will do. They will do. They will faint. Isn't that true, doctor? One doctor is talking about no angels now. Is that your guardian angel? Well, you know that's a nice pious thought. Yeah. There's nothing to prove or disprove it. We have no way of knowing. You know? And it's a nice idea. But then again, if you rely totally on a guardian angel, are you ignoring the Holy Spirit? Okay? Uh, that's the question you got to answer for yourself. Because the Holy Spirit... Um, I don't have the diagram I wanted to show you. Maybe I'll bring it in next week. The idea of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people don't understand, is that God's plan of salvation is sort of divided into three time periods. Okay? From the time of creation of man, from the time that time began, to the time of Christ, is the time during which the Father was in uh, control and established uh, all of the things that we're talking about here, beginning with the call of Abraham. And then he leaves it into the hands of Jesus Christ, who came for the whole period of redemption. And then when Jesus uh, ascended back into heaven, he left it in the hands of the Holy Spirit to take mankind and all of the benefits of the Father and Christ and help mankind use those benefits to return to the Father. So it's a, and I'll bring a diagram in next week for you. You might say that this is God's plan of salvation. All right. This is the time of the Father. From the beginning of time and creation all the way to the time of Christ. Alright? And then this is the time of Jesus. And all of the things that Jesus taught and finally did. And then this is the time of the Holy Spirit taking us back to the Father. Yes. And this is called, you've probably heard this, end times. Okay? Because nothing new is going to happen that hasn't already been revealed. And therefore, this is considered the end times. That's why there are no prophets, because the church now represents or takes the place of the prophets and speaks for God. The word prophet in itself means 
one who speaks for God. Yeah, but yeah. Now my division here, of course, is not very equal. But, yeah. Right, thirty-three years, but only three years really in the action part. Mm-hmm. But extremely important and powerful because the death of Christ was the epitome of this whole plan. Not really. No. No. Yes. But you see, the reason that we sort of know that Jesus was approximately 30 when he started his public life was because in that culture, that was like our 21. That was the age when a person was accepted as a mature adult. At 30? At 30. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, some people at 50 are not. Uh, but 30 was, 30 was the, the age of which people were then accepted. Prior to that, he would not have been accepted when he went around preaching. Okay? Now, the three years comes from the fact that in the Gospels, there is three different Passover uh, events talked about. Okay? There's no way to measure exactly, but there are three events that are three different Passover uh, events discussed. Right? So that's why we feel that Jesus uh, lived about 33 years. Nothing hard and fast about that one. Okay. Is this kind of understood? Uh, yeah. Okay. Next week, I have a diagram that I'll bring copies of for all of you. Because on one side, it talks about this. On the other side, it shows you the books of the Bible and how they all dovetail into this. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's the end. Death is death is the end. Nothing beyond that. Oh, I just I just have to tell you my favorite line. Some of you may have heard this before. At the time of Christ, and even today, there are a number of people that do believe in a life after death, and a number who do not believe in a life after death. The Reformed and the conservative Jews generally believe in some life after death, but it's not quite defined in their minds like it is in Christian thought. The Hasidic and the Ashkenazi Jews, the very ultra-conservative Jews, do not believe in life after death. In the time of Christ, you have the Pharisees who believe in life after death, And you had the Sadducees. These were the two main political parties. There were four others, but these were the two main political parties. The Sadducees did not believe after death, life after death. 
And that was why they were sad, you see. I just love doing that one. To follow so faithfully all those laws, and there's nothing at the end to reward them for it, or to, do they think their life on this earth will be better because of it? Yes. Or yeah. Maybe rewarded here. Uh, wait, 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 folks. Eleanor just asked a very important question. Why would the ultra-conservative people observe all the laws if they didn't believe there was an afterlife? Uh, what's the point? What's the point? But you see, that's the kind of problem or situation you get into when you believe in laws only and observe laws only. That becomes your God. Okay? And, of course... Jesus tried very hard to get them to see the difference. Jesus really never, with a few exceptions, Jesus really did not preach anything new. What he tried to do was get the people to go back to basics. That is, go back to the early days of Judaism, particularly at the time of Moses, when they worshipped God alone. Not the laws. Now, whenever you have a large organization, you have to have some structure. You have to have some rules and so forth. Otherwise, you have chaos. Okay? Uh, so the Ten Commandments was the beginning of the law. That didn't come along until 500 years after Abraham. So what do they do between Abraham and Moses? They observed their own culture and traditions. And that's all. But they observed the whole concept of one true God, which is what they were given credit for. When there's no laws, then how can there be any sin? Because you're not breaking any laws. But once these laws are established, and if you accept them as given by God, rather than just a man, Moses, then God is going to judge you by what you believe. And these Hasidic Jews and the Ashkenazis, the ultra-conservative Jews, they still believe that by observing their law, they are becoming perfect in, in their own eyes. Because once they die, there's nothing. You know, that's their belief. Unfortunately, I think they're going to be rudely awakened. Okay. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Carl. Yes. Remember, I would say, we must scandalize the little ones who were angels to be faithful to my father and mother. Oh, yes. Well, all right. Hey, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, Cora asked a very good question here. Uh, when I said about angels, we have no way of knowing 
the comment I was referring to is we have no way of knowing if if we have a personal guardian angel. All right. I did not mean to imply that we don't believe in angels. The church believes that there were angels and are angels. Okay. We just have no way of knowing for certain if each of us has a personal guardian angel. Because, uh, as Cora pointed out, even Jesus mentions angels, all right, uh, in several different places, okay. So, yes, we believe that God created angels, but for a time period preceding the church. And now the angels have sort of uh, diminished their role, or their role has ended, you might say, as in the same way that the role of the prophets has ended, and the church has taken over. Oh, that's uh, that was a, no, no, no. That was a, a development of uh, in Old Testament times, and yes, I believe very firmly that those were real events, such as the angel Gabriel talking to Mary and uh, Joseph it's a, as a messenger. No. The whole idea, but there is the guardian angel uh, idea was from the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's right, sure. I have, you know, I have no problem with that. But whether or not we have a personal guardian angel that watches over us, uh, there's no way of knowing. I don't, I don't uh, approve or disapprove of that. Well, the story, the whole idea of the story of in the book of Tobit is where the whole idea of the guardian angel came from. Yeah. Yeah. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us now to take what we've heard and translate it into something that is meaningful to us as individuals. Help us then to line it up with your ideas, your plans, your will for us. Help us then to see how it all works out uh, for our role in your plan of salvation. Give us the strength and the courage to open our minds and our hearts to you so that we know and understand what it is you want of us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.